Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to start a whole series this month talking, you know, it is Pride Month, so we're going to talk about biblical marriage and biblical sexuality. And we're going to talk a lot about what Scripture says about marriage, about sexuality, but we're also going to respond to a lot of the issues that are happening. We're going to spend a lot of time this month talking about transgenderism because it is a topic that we see in the news. This month, we have some special guests that are going to join us, and I'm I'm excited about those guests. I'm excited for you to hear from those guests, and I hope to have one other special guest at the end of this month or here soon come. And you know what? This isn't the only time I want to be clear that we're going to talk about these things. I've been planning this particular, these particular episodes that you're going to listen to or watch this month for months. And one of the concerns that I have is I want to see more Christians get equipped on these matters. They're matters that are out there in the culture. This isn't necessarily about responding to the culture. This is about equipping the Christians to be able to take the word and to speak the word, to talk about these matters. Because, you know what, when I, for example, when I do an episode on the New Age, when we talk about, have talked about the Passion Translation, or Jesus Calling, or something else, I'm hearing back, you know what, I had no idea about those things. And so, my intent with doing all these episodes is the same, to be clear, as when we talk about, you know, the new age or some false teacher or whatever. It's to, the the motivation is to help equip you to take the word then and bring it to bear on that particular topic or issue. Uh, we are going to spend quite a lot of time uh, this month talking about um, we're going to spend a lot of time this month talking about uh, transgenderism. And to kick this off, the, the, the focus of this episode is the image of God and the history of the sexual revolution. There is a, there's a graphic, if you're watching the video, that you will see as I read this. Uh, this graphic comes from my friend, Dr. Thaddeus Williams. Uh, he is a professor at Biola. He is, uh, he is a well-known author and theologian. Um, he made this graphic. It's called Meet the Men Who Inspire the Gender Ideology Being Taught to Today's Children. The first one is Alfred Kinsley, who lived from 1894 to 1956. He, w- he focused on sexual behavior in the human male slash female. Uh, He taught 
that sexuality is fluid and gender is non-binary. He invented the Kinsley scale of gender fluidity based on interviews of over 1,000 sex offenders and pedophiles. He loathed uh, same, uh, excuse me, he loathed biblical marriage, that is marriage between a man and a woman. He viewed it as oppressive. The facts are sexually abusive minors in his research, including multiple things related to uh, teenagers and stuff like that. He falsified his research. He advocated bestiality, incest, pedophilia, and other things. The next man that we'll consider is William Reich who lived from 1897 to 1956. He uh, spoke about um, the interaction between a husband and wife and in intimacy in 1926. He wrote a book on that. He coined the term the sexual revolution, promoting if it feels good, do it. Uh, So he was all about sexual expressivism to achieve liberation from repression. He viewed... Uh, a marriage between one man and one woman as uh, as a relic, an evil relic of religion. Um, he battled recurring psychosis. He practiced vegotherapy, massaging naked patients, including children. Um, he had multiple affairs. He defended pedophilia. He died in prison. Michael Fulch wrote The History of Sexuality in 1976. He considered the godfather of queer theory. He advanced the idea that heteronormativity is a power structure that must be deconstructed by the pursuit of subversive sexual identities and pleasure. He he was suicidal. He argued for consensual sex between adults and children. He campaigned to legalize pedophilia in France. He practiced sadomasochism, torture, and sexual activity. He died tragically of HIV. Harry Benjamin, 1885 to 1986. He wrote in 1966 about the transsexual phenomenon. He championed today's dogma that the mind of the transsexual can be adjusted to the body. We must adjust the body to the mind, making him a forefather of gender ideology and even reassignment surgery. Um, He experimented on children's bodies undeterred when his research assistant revealed there is too much unhappiness among people who have had the surgery, too many end in suicide. John Money, 1921 to 2006, he wrote Gay, Straight, and In Between in 1988. He coined the term gender identity in 1976. He believed that gender was a mere social construct and a purely subjective phenomena. He promoted and even practiced hormone therapy and gender reassignment surgery for children. He made six-year-old twins strip and and engage in in activities that they shouldn't at the age of six, show them uh, pornography, sexually abuse them, both later killed themselves, falsified research, defended pedophilia. John Paul Sarti, 1905 to 1980. He wrote Existentialism and Human Emotion in 1956. He argued that man is nothing else but what he makes himself. The existential doctrine of subjective self-definition that forms the philosophical foundation for today's transgender and queer theories. He was notorious womanizer for whom sex was about the sadist conquest of another. 
He hooked uh, lots of things onto people's bodies. He campaigned for pedophilia. He described himself as Gaga. I'm not stupid, but I'm empty, he says. Jacques Derrida, who lived from 1930 to 2004, he wrote Speech and Phenomena in 1967. He inspired queer theory by deconstructing language as an oppressive power play. He, she, man, woman are false binaries, tools of subordination, he argued. And we must, he says, disorganize the inherited order by trashing such binaries. He described himself as a horrible Mediterranean macho man. Sons, his sons disowed him for his many infidelities. They coerced lovers to have abortions. They refused to acknowledge the existence of a love child. So that'll be on your screen. You'll, you'll have seen that if you're watching the video episode, which, by the way, for a lot of these... You're going to want to watch probably the video episode uh, because I'm not going to always have uh, audio for them. So you can watch those at our website, servantsofgrace.org, or you can go to our YouTube uh, under Equipping You Grace on Servants of Grace's YouTube and, and find that there. The next graphic that's going to show up is comes from a Fox News article where it says that Gates funded millions of to NGOs claiming kids are born sexual, 10-year-olds should learn about commercial sex work, he says. That is uh, really disturbing that he would fund that kind of, of work. And so you'll, you'll see that. Uh, the next thing I have comes from an article from Breitbart. 13 TV shows and characters that are pushing the LGBTQ agenda on children. I am not going to put a screenshot of that particular image because I might put a, I'll put a screenshot of the article title, but, um, I'm not comfortable putting a screenshot of the image on the article for you to see. Uh, I try to keep this very family friendly, which is why even I have, uh, re-explained some things so that, uh, it is, family friendly, even though you can see them on the screen, just to be clear. So this article essentially argues from Breitbart that Hollywood has pushed a concentrated industry-wide effort for years to place LGBTQ-related entertainment into programs aimed at young audiences, often in cooperation with a gay, gay rights group called GLAAD. GLAAD has been lobbying Hollywood studios to increase the misrepresentation of LGBTQ characters in programming. So the major networks, including Nickelodeon, PBS, Cartoon Network, others joined that event. And now nearly every uh, TV series, animated or live action has added gay characters. There's 13 shows of this article list. Uh, She-Ra and the Princess of Power... SpongeBob SquarePants from Nickelodeon, Scooby-Doo, The Mystery Incorporated uh, from Warner Brothers Animation, Cartoon Network, DuckTales from Disney, My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic from Discovery Family, Arthur uh, PB from PBS, Adventure Time, Cartoon Network, Andy Mack from the Disney Channel, The Lord House from Nickelodeon, Clarence from the Cartoon Network, Steven Universe from the Cartoon Network, Blues Clues from Nickelodeon, Star versus the Forces of Evil from Disney XD. So those are those are some of the you know uh, articles, content. I use those examples so that you can see and you can hear. These are things that are out there 
in our culture, the, the first graphic, which I'll show you again here, I, I went through that because it perfectly summarizes the, the moment in, of history in which we are in. It, it shows, you know, where we are come from and what's even happening today. We're, we're living as the Oxford Dictionary uh, definition word was, and I think it was 2018, post-truth. We're living in a culture where post-truth is a value. And over and against these things we need to understand is the image of God, the matter of how God made us. God made us, Genesis 1:27 says, in his image and likeness. And so when we talk about gender from a biblical worldview, whether it's discussing homosexuality, transgenderism, gender dysphoria, or polynomy is a one is a wrong understanding of the image of God and mankind. In fact, much of this discussion occurring on uh, in a secular media that wants to promote equality and tolerance among every gender. And such a view even encourages people to believe there is fundamentally no difference between a man being a man and a woman being a woman. And yet the biblical evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of a man being a man and a woman being a woman. The Bible says that. All based on the creation account in Genesis and references to passages in Scripture like Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and Genesis 2, 20 through 22. The, the transgender movement has even conflated matters about the image of God even further. The LGBTQ movement has convinced people to such a degree using primary cultural social argumentation, such as from that image that I read from and you saw on your screen, that now people accept homosexuality and even transgenderism as a normative state even within the church today. And yet, the truth of Scripture, we know, stands in opposition to this view. Because God had a specific mind in mind when he created man and woman in his image, as Scripture says. Many people today are convinced that marriage isn't between one man and one woman, but rather that it can and even should be between one man with two women or any number of of non-biblical configuration. And yet, despite this cultural belief, the Bible says that one man and one woman is not only the God-given standard, it's the only way to have a marriage that honors God. That's a big, big claim today, but it's in the Bible. It's Genesis 2, 20, or yeah, Genesis 2, 20 through 22. So we have to ask, do we believe the Bible as Christians? And even further, and pornography degrades women and even men by giving people permission to see them not as a helpmate to man, as scripture says, or in cases of men being objectified, seeing them not as the true leader of the home, but only as someone to be viewed as an object of someone's pleasure. And now in addition to these challenging uh, challenges, I should say, to gender roles, evolutionary thinking, Darwinism, etc., and so on, has led many people to conclude there is no difference between humans and other organisms. And by this, to be clear, I'm talking about the theory of evolution. That's all it is. It's a theory. And that theory suggests that all organisms have come up to be through a blind, unguided process of random variation, natural selection, and other such effects such as genetic shift. And although there are different versions, different strands of evolutionary theory, this one evolutionary, the theory of evolution, is most prominent in our culture 
And it causes serious implications concerning what it means to be human. In fact, one result of the theory of evolution is its promotion by extension of the degradation of the moral significance of life. Those that teach this theory as truth claim that morality is up to the individual or the culture, that morality is relative to how I feel, to how I see things. And yet by saying this, they suggest that others should tolerate moral indifferent, in, uh, excuse me, moral differences among one another, but don't see where this thought process leads. That moral relativism, doing whatever I want, whenever I w- want to do it, it makes moral progress impossible. Another implication of this philosophy happened in 1950 in Montgomery, Alabama, a place and a time of segregation and racism. So when Rosa Parks sat in front of the bus and when Martin Luther King Jr. led a movement to recognize African Americans' full, full humanness at the end of it all we shifted from one cultural viewpoint to another and the relativist position says what right do you have to judge another culture but moral progress means that we judge another culture our own previous culture it means that after times of moral significance we say we become better than we were moral progress though is impossible if you can't say that we become better than we were before because relativism doesn't allow for that Relativism says the truth is relative to me, my feelings, my thoughts, my opinion. We face issues on every side regarding biblical morality and biblical sexuality today. For example, within a generation, we've seen homosexuality accepted culturally on the heels of that, the acceptance today of transgenderism as a norm. A cultural norm is an accepted behavior in a culture, something that the majority deems correct and not wrong. As Christians, we are people that are to be grounded and shaped by the truth because Jesus says in John 14, 6, he is the truth. And so we stand fast on the word and declare it. Such a message is viewed by a culture as hostile to its truth claims because they view it as outdated and unimportant. Christians who proclaim that God created mankind in his own image, they face resistance on the subject of abortion because according to what scripture teaches, we believe that life begins at conception and therefore we stand for the baby's right as a human being in the womb. Christians are pro-life, that is, from the womb to the tomb and everywhere in between. And it's not even just on issues of biblical sexuality that we face opposition. It's on biblical morality, on biblical sexuality, and biblical ethics. And we need to understand that as Christians, we live in a culture that exemplifies Romans 1. That people are not just dead in their trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 says, but they are spiritually blinded by Satan as 1 Corinthians 18 through 30 tells us. Christians must not compromise on the ethics, the morality, or the sexuality taught in Scripture, but stand fast on the Word of God. Christians are commanded in 1 Peter 3.15 to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that they have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. Christians are to contend for the faith, as Jude 3 says, that has been given once and for all delivered to the saints. As believers engage others, they are to do so being patient, being loving, because every single person is made in the image of God and thus deserves dignity, value, and respect. J.P. Moreland wrote a book called The Recalitrant, 
the Imago Dei, human persons, and the failure of naturalism. Imago Dei means image of God in Latin. Naturalism is a theory roughly that nothing exists but nature, nothing but matter and energy interacting by natural law and and chance. Naturalism says there is no God, no spiritual reality, and there are no souls, only bodies. Recalitrant is the key word in Moreland's title. It means obstinately uncooperative. We use it to describe misbehaving kids or criminals who won't change no matter how much correction is applied to them. Human nature is persistently resistant to cooperating with what evolutionary theory says we ought to think about ourselves. If unguided evolution is accurate, we shouldn't be fooled by these illusions or consciousness or free will, but we just can't help ourselves. We shouldn't think we're more significant than any other organism, but we just won't get with the program. And there's a reason for our stubbornness. The fact is we're human beings and no matter how hard somebody might try to talk ourselves out of it, we're always going to be human. And as such, we were created in the image and likeness of God, as scripture says. That's who we are. That's who we always will be. Being created in God's image means that we glorify him by thinking, by feeling, by deciding, by relating, by building, by creating, even in so-called non-spiritual realms of life. And those are good. It also means that we have moral significance. It means we can fail morally and turn all of this to a bad end. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over all every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Humanity is the pinnacle of the creation. Human beings are made in the image of God as uh, Genesis 1:26 and Genesis 5, 1-2 tell us. And the life we have is therefore sacred, as Genesis 9, 6 tells us. Human beings are to resemble God in every sphere of life as we were created to worship him and to enjoy relationship with one another, as Hebrews 10, 25 tells us. Humanity's calling is in summary to be fruitful so that the glory and goodness of God will multiply through human beings, as Genesis 1, 28 says and to be agents of God's dominion on the earth so the blessing of fruitfulness would enable them to fill the earth with God's image bearers as Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and Genesis 2, 20 through 24 tells us. As God's kingdom extends to the whole world, so his rule was it to extend to every corner of the earth by his direct influence and by his image bearers, which were privileged to be. And yet people failed by their sin, as Genesis 3 tells us, to fulfill their image-bearing responsibilities as Genesis 11, 1 through 9 and Psalm 2, 1 through 2 tell us. And yet again and again and again, the nation of Israel failed. Jesus Christ, as the second Adam, the last Adam, if you prefer that, fulfills God's image-bearing purposes and enables Christians to do the same. The apostle Paul speaks of the light of the glory of the of Christ, who is the image of God in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Christians are united to Christ by faith, so now the Lord sees us as the people of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, 
to whom we are being conformed in righteousness and holiness. Through Jesus' perfect life and his suffering, the penalty of our sins, as the perfect God-man, he, Jesus, provided for humans to be renewed in the image of God through faith in him. God's intended goal of spreading his righteousness, his righteous rule throughout the earth is being realized by the preaching of the gospel in and through the local church. The example of Adam and Eve reproducing and multiplying was used in the early church to emphasize the need of Christians to reproduce and multiply disciples of Jesus to the nation. Now, the truth of Genesis 1-2 through is coming under attack from the ideology of homosexuality, polygamy, pornography, and transgenderism today. Such attacks strike at the heart of what it means to be created in the image of God. And we as Christians, we have good answers to these issues because the word of God speaks to them, which is why every single Christian must speak up and proclaim the truth as given in the word of God. At the heart of current cultural discussions on morality and even sexuality is the idea that, you know what, we can live however we want to whether from having sex outside of marriage, having multiple partners and even spouses, attempting to marry the same sex, divorce for whatever reason we want, or attempting to change our gender, we see these viewpoints as even more and more popular even in the church today. In fact, the whole idea of living however we want is it's not new. It's been around since the fall. When Christians speak out against such ideas, they invite ridicule and the accusation of hypocrisy and bigotry how dare you our culture says speak out and tell me what what to do in the privacy of my own home can't you just keep that within the walls of the church the problem is is you see the apostles going out and telling other people about christ in the book of acts for example in acts 4 and acts 5 you you see paul in acts 17 acts 18 and and on and on from acts 13 forward really Going out in the public square, he went first to the synagogue. When he was rejected, he went to the Gentiles. So, you know, Christians have a long history of going out into the public square. So it's ironic, though. It's always ironic. Those who tell us as Christians, you know what? You should not be in the public square. You should not. And they wag their finger. You should not be telling me what to do in the privacy of my own home. You should not be to legislating my morality and my sexuality. Ironically, to me at least, is this, that these are the same people that are telling us that we must accept this and they are aiming to even make laws to make it legal. Ironic, I say uh, almost sarcastically because the irony is These are the same people that say, you know what? Everybody else can speak up because everybody is tolerant. Everybody everybody understands that this is now the the new norm. So if you speak out against this norm, you're you're inviting ridicule. You're inviting harm. But you're not really allowed to to say what you want. The problem is, is in a a free society, and especially in a society like ours, uh, we have the First Amendment. Uh, We have free speech. We have the ability to speak up and to say what we think and other people have the right to respond every single person in our society has that right is a god-given right we are made in the image and likeness of god the problem is is these people on the other side on the lgbtq side they don't want to give us the right to speak but they want everybody else to have to hear every single word that they say 
And again, day after day after day, you see this on the news. You see this in rallies and you see this in, in cities all throughout our country. And you might wonder, what do I do? Do I just zip my lip and should I just stay private about what I believe what the Bible says? What I'm hoping to do in this this whole month and even after this, we're going we're gonna to be talking with about these things afterwards. So don't be like, you know what? Uh, after this, this June, Dave isn't going to talk about this on the show anymore. I can tell you that's not true. We're going to keep talking about these things. I'm going to keep writing about these things and many other things, not just talking about this because it really matters. And let me be clear about something. When I talk against homosexuality or pornography or anything of the like, these are sins. The Bible, Leviticus 18, um, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, defines these things. Well, 1 Corinthians 6 says that talks about it in terms of identity. The, the rest of the New Testament talks about these things as works of the flesh, meaning that these were things that you were formally defined by, and now you're to be defined and have your identity in Christ. And so when, when Christians speak up about these things, they don't they don't do so. They do so because we are commanded to speak the truth in love in Ephesians 4.15. We're accused by doing the very thing that the Bible tells us to do, commands us to do, of hypocrisy, of bigotry. Christians should not be afraid of such criticism of hypocrisy and even bigotry, but we should continue to stand fast on the holiness of God revealed in Scripture, as 1 Peter 1, 13-15 tells us. We as Christians have been called out of the world to a new life in Christ, to be new creations, to shine His light to a perishing world, as Matthew 5, 10-12 and 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21 tells us to make an appeal to all men to be reconciled to God. At the heart of the argument of living however we want to live is the Lord's call in our lives. He is the creator and we are his creation as Psalm 24 and Psalm 145 tell us. So people respond to such an argument with, you can't judge me for how I lived. Just keep that private, right? And yet even so we can say the Lord will judge man because he is a rightful ruler over creation. For he who creates has a right to define the terms for how we live as Revelation 1-4 tells us. Now, example, even in, in the Christian church, let's say a pastor preaches on the holiness of God or on what God requires man to do in light of the person and the work of Christ, they're, they're going to get accused of legalism today. During World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote a, a pastor, a German pastor. He ministered in the underground church in Nazi Germany. He wrote the now classic book, The Cost of Discipleship. And in The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer argued for a concept of costly grace versus cheap grace. Costly grace, Bonhoeffer argued, was what Jesus did on the cross. Cheap grace is living however we want to live. I fear that some people think that they can out-nuance the Bible in order to involve, or to, in order to avoid, I should say, the accusation of legalism. And yet by doing so, they end up compromising the truth of the word. And now after explaining how man left to his own devices will naturally love more of his sin and not God in Romans 1 through 3, Paul shows how man can be declared not guilty through Jesus in 
chapters 4 through 5. Romans 6 opens this way after explaining how we can be declared not guilty with a question in verse 1 in Romans uh, 6 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Such a question is an important one because it gets to the heart of why we're even talking about the image of God in the first place. God's grace makes us new creations in Him. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21 tells us. So Christians do not live, cannot live, and should not live however they want to live. That's Paul's point in Romans 6, 1. We have a new master in Jesus. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 tells us. We we were once held captive to the prince of the power of the air as... Um, as uh, Ephesians 2 2 tells us. And now God, Christ has transferred us at the moment of our salvation. He's declared us children of God by grace alone. And in light of the grace of God that we've received, we are to live a new way because we belong to the King who tells us to put off the old way, to walk in newness of life in Him. Christians are not to walk in the oldness of life, but walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. And so when Jesus talks about counting the cost, he has in mind the way that disciples would live. And Jesus is the only rightful ruler and the covenant Lord. In fact, in the ministry of Jesus, we see him giving many hard words, such as counting the cost and following him all of life. And when Jesus gave hard words, people abandoned him, despite the fact that he alone is the one that can offer eternal life. Christians are, are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's because of what Christ has done that we do not live however we want to live. We don't live by our own rules, but by the revealed word of God. The creator has the right to dictate to the creation that he made the terms of eternal life. And so living however we want to as Christians cheapens the grace of God in Christ alone. And some people, some Christians think all they have to do is confess and repent and all is going to be well. But the, the mark of biblical repentance is turning away from sin and returning to the Lord with all of your heart. In 1 John 1, 6, the apostle says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What John has in mind here are those who say they can live however they want because they belong to the Lord. But it is these people who aren't practicing the truth. In the previous verse, in 1 John 1, 5, John says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so John contrasts those who walk in the light with those that don't while claiming to be children of the light. And with this comparison, he says in 1 John 1, 7, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then John says in 1 John 1, 9, that we are to confess our sin, which acknowledges our wrongdoing before the holiness of the Lord. Only then will the Lord cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so Christians do not cohabitate before marriage, nor do they support, nor do they practice a homosexual lifestyle, nor do they participate in polygamy, pornography, adultery, prostitution, pedophilia, bestiality, because the Lord created the institution of marriage to be between one man and one woman. And through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Christians can put off the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life by putting on Christ. And so Christians refuse to live however they want because they've been transferred to a new king under King Jesus. And therefore we live as God requires us in obedience to the Lord because of the grace that we've received in and from Jesus and increasingly, we display the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. And so living how we want, it cheapens the grace of God in Christ. 
Paul's response to this in Romans 8 is that we are to live by the Spirit. Paul's point is that if we desire to live a holy life, a life that pleases and honors the Lord, we're going to live under the power of the Holy Spirit. This life is only possible because of what Christ has done in his death, burial, and resurrection and the present power and indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so what should you do in light of the biblical teaching that we've considered in this episode? Well, dear Christian, I want you to understand that you've been saved for a purpose. That purpose isn't just for you. It is for God's glory. The life that you've been called to as a Christian is one of sacrifice. When the first followers of Jesus heard him say that they were to count the cost and follow him, many people left his side forever. Those who are Christ will obey him. Those who refuse to obey Jesus give evidence that they are not the Lord's. They do not belong to him. And while all of our obedience is only partial in scope, any obedience is better than none. As Christians, we should see evidence year by year, regardless of how little that we are growing in the grace of God. And if there's no evidence at all in your life that you're being conformed to the image of Christ, you have great reason to be concerned about your salvation in Christ. If there's even the tiniest sliver of evidence that you're changing, that you're conforming to the image of Christ, then you should give glory to God. Such evidence is a means by which God is encouraging you in your faith. The the true Christian goes back to their identity in Christ. As we talked about just uh, briefly a few moments ago, because it's there that they can find genuine assurance and confidence before God. And the fruit of our lives, let's be clear, will testify to whether our profession of faith is true or not. All of this is why our profession of our faith must be matched by his possession of our lives. These two, profession and possession, work together to give Christians assurance and increasing confidence in Christ. And so if you lack confidence before God, I want you to examine your life in light of Christ. See where you're lacking. Repent and return to your first love, Jesus Christ. He's ready and he's waiting for you. His throne of grace bids you come. Your intercessor and your high priest beckons you to himself. Maybe today you're listening or watching this show and you know, you you realize there's no fruit in my life. The only fruit of my life is I'm going my own way. I'm going the way of the world. If that's you and you're listening or watching this right now, I want to plead with you to do on the basis of Acts 16.31, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To do as Romans 10, 9 through 17 tells you to do, and to believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth that Jesus died and rose. If you do that, the Lord is faithful and he will, he will save you because he's a good God. He's a holy God. He's a just God. He is a God who Jonah 2.9 says salvation is of the Lord. And so he will save you. But back to talking about this topic as a whole now. Proclaiming that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. It's only going to come with increasing persecution in our day. From a secular society as Christians, we must not be afraid to speak the truth in love. We are commanded to speak the truth in love in Ephesians 4.15. We must challenge the worldview of those who reject marriage between one man and one woman because such a rejection is not merely a rejection of marriage. It's an assault on, uh, on the God of the Bible from whom this institution came. Christians, we must stand on the word of God. We must 
declare the whole counsel of God. You see, on topics related to gender issues, marriage, we need to understand that the truth of the word of God matters for our faith and for our practice. And since scripture is reliable, it's authoritative, it's trustworthy, it's sufficient, it's clear, Christians believe that God created man in his image and likeness. And so ultimately, how we view the first few chapters of Genesis has dramatic and significant implications for how we view the rest of the Bible. I know that today we have talked about a great deal. We have covered a great deal of ground. From the history of the sexual revolution to talking about Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3 and also the Bible's teaching on marriage and sin and salvation and even growth in Christ and so much more. You know what? But we're not done talking about it. This is just the beginning of this conversation that we're going to have. Joining us next week, I'm excited to say, and I'm going to try to do this after at the end of every episode. Joining us next week is Rosaria Butterfield. If you've never heard Rosaria Butterfield, you are in for a very special treat. She is going to talk with us on the growing challenge of transgenderism in our culture. We're going to hear from, from her on this, and we're going to learn together to respond to this growing challenge. I want to encourage you this month to go ahead and uh, subscribe. If you get your podcasts on you know, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or if you listen to them on Spotify, if you listen on uh, Google, Pl- Google Podcasts, or you can go to our YouTube at youtube.com slash Servants of Grace. You can find us also at Sermon Audio under... Uh, just type in Sermon Audio, Servants of Grace, Sermon Audio. You can find our channel there. Friends, we're living in times where we need to understand the issues that are at play. But we don't have to cower in fear. In fact, the number one command given in the Bible is fear not. And isn't that interesting? Because you know what the reason is? Our God is faithful. Our God is just. Hebrews 13.5 and Verse 8 tell us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so, dear Christians, stand on the word. Stand on the word and declare the unchanging nature of your God to a culture that denies the word. Declare it without apology, without fear. The fear of man. Fear God more than you fear man. Stand on the word because it tells you about what your God has said. And speak the truth in love. Deal with arguments like we're doing. And do it in love with a goal, with a motivation. To help people to see the truth. To to see the superiority of the biblical worldview over and against. Over and against what our culture says. And even what the church has said. In fact, even in in the next episode, you'll hear from Rosaria. Interacting with how how these ideas are even under attack in the church today. By leading podcasters, people that are in the top podcast category on iTunes under the religion and Christianity category. And and the reason that we do this is to help you, to help you understand, here's what scripture says. Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is the standard. That's that's what we're supposed to do as 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells us to do. Test all things, hold fast to what is good. So let's do that, brothers and sisters, and let's stand on the word of God. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of Equip You in Grace. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.
Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.